0: Hello, and welcome to the Qubit Guy podcast, brought to you by Classic, the quantum algorithm design company. My name is Yuval, and my guest today is Paul Lippmann, President Quantum Computing at Cold Quanta. Paul and I talk about the differences between cold atom qubits and superconducting qubits, about pricing strategies for cloud-based quantum computers, and much more. We hope you enjoy this episode. Please let us know how we did by emailing hello at classic.io that's hello at cla.ssiq.io. Hello Paul and thanks for joining me today.
1: Nice to meet you Yevall and thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: So who are you and what do you do?
1: So I'm uh, Paul Litman. I'm president of quantum computing at Cold Quanta, so I lead the team building our quantum computers. And, and Cold Quanta uh, as a company we are uh, a leader in cold atom Technology. The company was founded in 2007, uh, and was actually founded out of some groundbreaking work that was done at Colorado University in Boulder, uh, where uh, a team, including our co-founder Dana Anderson, were the first group in the world to create a Bose-Einstein condensate. We can talk a little bit about what that is and and why it matters. Uh, And so Dana founded the company, uh, and we are one of the world leaders in developing, manufacturing uh, pristine vacuum chambers in very small footprint. And that's really at the core of what we do that enables a wide array of uh, quantum technology use cases, including obviously quantum computing.
0: So when we focus on quantum computing, what does cold atom mean? And why is it different? Or why is it better, in your opinion, than other modalities of quantum computing?
1: Yeah, so, so cold atom, essentially, when we talk about uh, quantum technology, and we talk about quantum mechanics and quantum effects, uh, those start to take effect uh, at very small scales and also at very low temperatures. So when you cool matter down to very low temperatures, the, the quantum mechanical effects start to get uh, realized and you can then use them for either creating uh, quantum sensors, for example, as we do at Cold Quanta, And also you can use those cold Atoms uh, as qubits. Uh, and so at, at Cold Quanta, we use a variety of techniques for uh, trapping atoms, cooling them down to microkelvin, hundreds of uh, millionths of a degree uh, above absolute zero. Um, and, and then those qubits can be used to create uh, a quantum computer. So in the case of, of Cold Quanta, we use cesium atoms or our qubits and we trap them in a 2D grid. Uh, of laser light, and then we use lasers and microwaves to prepare state to uh, affect the the qubits, uh, quantum states, uh, to entangle them, make measurements. Uh, And one of the real benefits of this approach is it's inherently very scalable. Because these are neutral atoms, we can pack them very closely together. They're a couple of microns apart in the array. And, And so in a device that could literally sit in the palm of your hand, we're, we're trapping our qubit array. Uh, today, we're working on qubit arrays of roughly 100 qubits. Uh, very soon, we'll scale that up to thousands and, and ultimately could get to hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions uh, of qubits, uh, again, in a very small space. So there's some real inherent scale advantages that come with the cold atom approach to quantum computing. And
0: so scale advantages and, and also maybe cooling, right? I mean, do you need that big refrigerator around your computer?
1: Yeah, so this is one of the key differences between the cold atom approach to quantum computing and the superconducting approach. So uh, in the superconducting approach, you have qubits that are manufactured qubits, right? They have to be made in a, in a fab, uh, and then they have to be cooled down typically to micro Kelvin to thousands of a degree above absolute zero in these dilution refrigerators. Uh, And if you think about scaling up from, say, where some of the superconducting uh, providers are today in the kind of the order of 50 qubits to scaling up to ultimately millions of qubits, you have to build these dilution refrigerators that take up an entire room, kind of basketball court sized. Uh, With the cold atom approach, we don't require any cryogenic refrigeration. We're simply using lasers to cool these atoms down, essentially to hold the atoms in place to reduce their motional kinetic energy and thus cool them down to three orders of magnitude cooler. In fact, in our traps today, we're getting to temperatures of the order of five microkelvins, so five millionths of a degree above absolute zero, a thousand times colder than a superconducting quantum computer, but with no refrigeration at all. And that has some pretty important implications, again, in terms of of how you scale these technologies up, how you maintain state, the coherence of the qubits, uh, which all go to the benefit that ultimately you need in in terms of driving real uh, algorithmic fidelity.
0: So looking at the flip side, if we had here a a representative of a company that makes superconducting qubits and uh, quantum computers based on superconducting technology, what would you think they say that the disadvantage of the Cold Atom approaches?
1: Well, look, I, I think there's a variety of modalities um, in the industry, right? Um, there's the superconducting, which is arguably uh, was the first out of the gate, no pun intended, in terms of creating uh, quantum computers, there's the trapped iron modality, maybe a little way behind. Uh, and then Cold Atom is really the, the new kid on the block. But ultimately, the new kid on the block with decades of, of research and technology development and capability behind us uh, and so I, I think if you had somebody and no doubt you if you haven't already had them on the podcast you will uh, from the superconducting world they would point to the fact that they have these quantum computers in the real world available online uh, for customers to use uh, and experience well uh, Cold ColdQuanto will be launching our first quantum computer. It'll be a 100-qubit quantum computer named Hilbert after David Hilbert, uh, and we'll be releasing that towards the end of, of this year, uh, and then uh, ultimately from there scaling up very rapidly.
0: How fast is the cycle time of the actual compute? So if I had a one megahertz sort of classical CPU, then I know that it's about one micron for each cycle. How long is the cycle for a cold quanta quantum computer?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. So I I think there's two pieces to that. And I I think one of them, and maybe we'll get into this and kind of talk about the the advantages and how these computers are being used today, um, comparing uh, clock rates between classical computers and quantum computers, while while interesting, uh, is probably not the right way to think about it, because ultimately, we're relying on these devices to do very different things. That being said, Uh, The physics uh, of Rydberg atoms, which is the the technique that we use for entanglement uh, and for gates, uh, supports clock rates in the 100 megahertz region. So certainly not today, at least, the gigahertz that you would have from a classical computer. But again, I think we have a bit of an apples and oranges uh, comparison there in terms of the type of work that we're giving to a classical computer versus a quantum computer. Once the
0: Hilbert is... Available, how do you see it deployed? If I don't need this big refrigeration, do I just own one as a company? Does it go on the cloud? Does it go on your cloud? How how do you see deployment initially happening?
1: Yeah, so initially we'll be launching Hilbert, uh, as I say, at the end of this year, and that will be on our own cloud. Uh, and we'll then be launching on one or more of the public cloud services going into 2022. And that computer Hilbert and actually the generations that we have planned coming after Hilbert will initially be hosted in our data center in Boulder, Colorado, conceivably in other locations uh, as well. One of the other benefits of the cold atom approach to quantum computing is the potential for actually reducing the form factor. And so we have experience doing this. Uh, I was actually in our uh, Oxford UK office last week where we pioneered uh, some really interesting work in creating uh, photonically integrated sources for for cold atom technology. So we took something that would typically be an optical bench of approximately one square meter, and we reduced it down to something, again, that you could hold in the palm of your hand. Uh, And the same thing will be true with with quantum computing as well. So with with cold atom, the actual uh, qubit array Uh, you could have a million qubits in something the size of of your fingernail, and actually with plenty of room to spare, these atoms are packed, as I say, very closely together. Uh, And so the roadmap uh, for us going forward, ultimately, our vision is that all of the optics uh, and all of the lasers and all of the electronics uh, get shrunk down to eventually the point where this can become a rack-mountable device. And so if you think about uh, a quantum computer, say, 100,000, a million qubit quantum computer and a couple of 19-inch rack-mountable units, that, that eventually opens up some really interesting and compelling use cases, right? I mean, if you think about uh, a quantum computer uh, at the edge of the network, uh, a quantum computer uh, on, on a satellite, for example, as part of a, of a quantum communication network, these are things that are not even conceivable for these large-scale room-sized devices but ultimately, this, this form factor reduction, uh, I think, will open up a whole new world of, of possibility.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned that the computers will initially be available on your cloud and then going a little bit later on some of the public clouds. Are they always physically in Boulder? Or so, if I were a, an AWS subscriber or a Google Quantum or an Azure, Uh, quantum, uh, would I end up submitting jobs to a computer that's in Boulder? Or would it be hosted in one of their data centers?
1: Yeah, so I think we have to uh, differentiate there between the near term and the the midterm and longer term. So today in the near term, uh, the same will be true for cold quantum as it is for all of the other quantum computers that uh, are currently commercially available, which is they're hosted in specialized data centers, and while they may be made available uh, through uh, cloud infrastructure, and, uh, and certainly that has terrific benefits, these, these are devices that are physically in the, uh, the vendor's uh, data center locations. I, I think we'll see that change over time, and it'll change both as a result of some of the players, you know, Microsoft has big investments in uh, Photonic, uh, Amazon working on their own quantum computers, obviously Google has developed their own. Uh, And then, as I say, as the form factors get reduced, certainly for Cold Atom, we'll have the capability of then deploying those devices um, within a variety of data center uh, environments, both public cloud, private cloud, hybrid cloud. It it opens up a range of different uh, capabilities there.
0: How do you price the usage? Is it by, oh, I'm using the computer for... 32 seconds today, and therefore I pay something times 32? Or is it by the number of operations or the number of qubits? How, how do you expect, what's the pricing, what's the driver for the pricing?
1: So, so I think uh, this is uh, an area of, I, I think, quite considerable uh, change that's happening in the industry. And certainly, if you look at the pricing of the quantum computers that are available in the public clouds today, it is really all over the place. Uh, in terms of pricing methodology, in terms of pricing structures, um, and, and this is something where we're in active conversation with a wide array of potential customers for Hilbert to determine the most appropriate pricing methodology. As I say, Hilbert's launching later this year. We haven't yet publicly announced uh, our pricing. We have some customers who've said to us, you know, we just want to pay for for schedule blocks of time to be able to run our jobs and others who've said, actually, what we want to do longer term is have a fully dedicated quantum computer, but one that you call quanta host in your data center and everything in between. So this is an active area uh, of work for us, and we will be publicly announcing the pricing uh, at launch.
0: You have customers, or there are customers in the quantum world in, in various stages of commitment to quantum. There are obviously those who are just thinking about it. There are those who are Uh, doing various proof of concepts to see if there's a fit, if quantum really can deliver on the promise. And then there are those who say, okay, I'm getting ready to move this into production. Um, At what kind of applications do you think that becomes cost effective? Uh, I've been speaking with a couple of customers and one of them told me that he was very excited about in his particular case, quantum machine learning. And then when he started doing the the math is, oh, this is going to be so horribly expensive that I'll stick with uh, my classical computers for the foreseeable future. How, where do you see it being a cost-effective in the production environment?
1: Yeah, I, this is really tied in my mind to the question of, of quantum advantage. So quantum advantage, as your listeners I'm sure know, is doing something with a quantum computer that delivers uh, either exponential speed up uh, if that's of importance or, or solving problems that are classically uh, intractable. but but I think it's important to distinguish between quantum advantage in, in that sense um, versus maybe what we should call quantum benefit, which is where the QPU uh, is an accelerator or an enhancer of uh, and part of a, a classical workflow process. So we're kind of be adding the QPU, Uh, into that classical existing process. So if we could do that and deliver, say, a a doubling in performance uh, or speed or or accuracy, I I think that would unlock tremendous commercial benefit. So it's not simply saying, I want to take uh, a machine learning algorithm and I want to run it using QML on a quantum computer and I'm comparing the cost uh, and the return of, of A versus B but rather maybe a more nuanced view, which is to say there are certain parts of the algorithm, certain parts of the workflow that makes sense to hand off to the QPU. And it's not that we have to necessarily wait for the day when the quantum computer will do something that we literally can't do today with classical, but rather can the QPU provide some incremental benefit and thus look at the cost effectiveness um, in, that, uh, in that lens. Uh, and so I, I think this transition to commercially useful quantum computing, it is not, it's not a bit flip, right? And it's not going to happen at the same time uh, across all use cases. And I think we're already seeing some early examples of, of value being delivered in that way. And I do believe that quantum machine learning will be uh, one of those areas where we're going to see near-term impact and near-term results. Um, I mean, coincidentally, I, I recently bought... Uh, uh, Shantanu uh, Ganguly's book, uh, so I was very uh, excited to hear uh, the interview you did with him just uh, just recently. Um, so, a personal area uh, of interest of mine.
0: I I tend to agree with you that the issue is cost effectiveness and not just the oh I couldn't do it anywhere else. And to an extent, it's like a, going from a CPU to a GPU. You could run the same code on an AWS instance that's a CPU only or that has GPU and If I run it on the GPU, maybe I get something that I get faster response time that's beneficial to my customer or otherwise save money. So given that we're talking about existing applications, just part of them being executed on a QPU, if you were a betting man, which is it just QML or do you see other applications that you think are very close to that cost-effectiveness threshold?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and actually, you 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 made me uh, realize there's an additional angle actually to a previous question you asked, which is about where will the the QPU be hosted in this public cloud scenario. And I think one of the other factors, um, and the example you gave there of the of the GPU as part of the machine learning process, is really an important one, which is um, we ultimately in production will need to deal with latency effects, and and that's the reason and that's the imperative for the QPU to actually be physically uh, co-located with the classical uh, CPU uh, environment. So I, I think that's also a consideration that we need to be mindful of. Coming back to your, your question though, uh, in addition to QML, so we're seeing uh, a lot of interest and in having a lot of very uh, compelling conversations uh, in, the, in the quantum chemistry area. So in terms of molecule simulation, pharmaceutical, uh, I, I think we'll, we'll see some early work there um, with, with customers that will announce kind of going into, into next year. And, and for us that's really a function of well we can bring 100 qubits to bear and now we can start to map some pretty complex problems to the QPU. Uh, and then also in financial services, there's there's really a lot of interest we're seeing uh, in derivative pricing, in portfolio, optimization and and, uh, and I think some, some interesting results um, that'll come out of that industry in really in the near term.
0: So you guys are making a lot of progress on the hardware, You know, first version later this year, subsequent versions uh, in the future. Other companies are also racing towards faster or larger quantum computers. Other than the hardware, what else do you see as a barrier to quantum computing going a little bit more mainstream?
1: So I, I think this could be... The subject of an entire uh, discussion in and of, it, of itself, um, and, and there's there's really some very uh, kind of key uh, points there. I I, I would kind of highlight maybe maybe three things. I, I think first uh, the programming platforms, and I know this is the space that uh, Classic uh, operates in. You know, traditional developers, software developers, don't write uh, and 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 not gates, right? They're not coding at that that detail gate level. Uh, And and the same will have to become true for uh, software developers that are writing algorithms for for quantum systems. Uh, So there's that abstraction layer that is going to have to uh, emerge and and is going to have to mature. Uh, And similarly, you you know, I kind of got my start in, in quantum computing, learning to program Qiskit myself. And, you know, you could write uh, circuit for, for five qubits, maybe 10 qubits. Perhaps if you're far smarter than I am, you could scale that up to 50, um, but there's no way to hang code gate-level circuits for hundreds, much less thousands, uh, or, or even millions uh, of qubits. Of so that that whole programming platform uh, operating system level will, will have to emerge and mature so that these uh, quantum computers and, and quantum systems can evolve out of the kind of early experimental way they're being used today to really be used uh, at scale in production uh, across across a broad swath of, of industry. So I think that's the first point. Uh, I think the second point kind of ties back to uh, a, a word you used in the question, which is production. So I, I think uh, to to really be uh, effective as part of uh, a workflow process in production, um, these, these hardware platforms and, and systems have to achieve commercial class availability and performance, right? If, if I'm running, uh, again, a derivative pricing system, let's say for uh, an investment firm, um, or, or I'm running an optimization process for uh, a logistics company and and, part of that workflow is being handed off to the QPU, then that system has to be available 24-7. It has to meet a set of service level um, metrics. Uh, It has to be performant responsive. Uh, And so I think there is a maturation process that has to happen in the quantum ecosystem to support that. I think the third, and maybe this one ultimately long-term is the most important, is the topic of, of the quantum workforce development and training. And so, uh, and this is kind of across the spectrum, everything from PhDs, you know, we're hiring uh, as fast as we can AMO physicists uh, and, uh, and uh, quantum physicists. And, and so while there is a pipeline of PhD candidates, we certainly benefit from a very close relationship with, uh, with Boulder uh, and with Madison uh, in terms of the physics departments there. Uh, there is a need for kind of an expansion uh, of that end of the pipeline. But this is really all the way down, I, I think, through through high school level uh, education of, of quantum technology and its importance and its applications, both on the scientific side, but also on the business side as well, right? So that business decision makers in companies can understand uh, what quantum is, why it matters, how it can be applied, how they can derive benefit from it. Uh, and I, so I think that that education plays a very major part in this, this question of kind of what's holding quantum back from more widespread
0: uh, deployment. Perfect. And uh, Paul, I know we're running out of time. How can people get in touch with you to learn more about your work?
1: Uh, so certainly uh, our website, uh, coldquanta.com uh, is the best way to to contact us. Um, and, and certainly follow us on on Twitter, um, connect with us on on LinkedIn. We also have a a clubhouse channel, Quantum Revolution, that I would encourage people to check out. Uh, and then to connect with me personally, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. It's Paul Lippman. Uh, and uh, certainly feel free to contact me by email. It's paul.lippman
0: at colquanta.com. That's perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today. Very nice chatting with you, Yuval.